I'm in Luke chapter 20. We're going to finish out that chapter and we're going to jump in to chapter 21 just a bit. Jesus is now in Jerusalem. The Jewish rulers are not happy about it because when he entered the city, he didn't go up to Herod's palace and take his seat on Herod's throne. He didn't become the political king that they had hoped for. He didn't come to restore Israel to be a world power. Rather, he goes to the temple. He drives out the money changers. He overturns their tables and he overturns the very lives of the Jewish rulers because they have now lost their place of prominence amongst the people that they cared so desperately about. And in in doing so, Jesus says, hey, this is my house. It's my house. And he begins to act like it. He starts to meet there every day, teaching the true word of God, preaching the gospel. That's a gospel of grace. That It's by grace alone that we can be saved, not by works, that kind of thing. And flies in the face of of these self-righteous teachers of the law. And uh, so they're upset. And they attack him. Publicly, they, they try multiple times in multiple ways. Sometimes they do it directly. Sometimes they hire spies to come and attack Jesus. But to this point, he has endured all of their questions. And, and all of their questions have turned against them, really. And, uh, and, and, and they've failed miserably. And so now Jesus is going to ask of them a question. It's the second question he asks of them. And in doing so, as he asks this second question, and then answers it. In doing so, he's actually going to answer the very first question they asked of him, which is, who are you? Right? Whose authority are you doing this? Who do you think you are? And so today, Jesus is going to put the Jewish religious leaders in their rightful place by teaching them about his rightful place. All right? Let's jump into that story. Let's first invite our teacher to come and guide us. Father God, we love you, and we have come to hear from you. Holy Spirit, in this church, we uphold, we observe, and we proclaim that you are our teacher and our guide. And we recognize that that is your role, not just in our church, but in our very lives. And we ask now this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would come and take your place at our pulpit and that you would teach us the words of Jesus, that he may be lifted up and that he may draw each of us unto himself, that we would come to this altar, that we would bow down before the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, and that we would be forever changed. We ask all this in Jesus' holy, powerful, and precious name. Amen. It's reading this week that there is a plague, it seems, amongst many Christian churches, uh, especially evangelical churches, and it's a plague of... The absence of the Holy Spirit. Reading Francis Chan's Forgotten God, and he says, 
somewhere in the 80s and 90s as we got into really programmed, formatted worship. It seems we programmed the Holy Spirit right out of the building. And we don't recognize his role often. Um, if you're new here, I just I want to I want to tell you God. I think God's been stirring that up in us for some time, it, it, and it's not that we we don't spend a lot of time working on 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 what the worship's going to look like or uh, what text we're going to be in, but a realization that ultimately we have nothing to say to you that can change your life, but the Holy Spirit does, and so we're going to exalt Him because when He's exalted, He exalts Jesus. That's his role. And so if that freaks you out that we invite the Holy Spirit to come be our teacher, I just I want to explain why we do that here and why we do it on a regular basis and why we're going to continue to do it. Uh, because that is his role in our lives, John chapter 14. And so uh, let's let him guide us now. I'm in Luke chapter 20, verse 41. It says, Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in long flowing robes and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. And these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Uh, three things I'm going to share with you. First is the question that Jesus proposes and then answers about whose son is the Christ. And then the second is an object lesson. And Jesus is a great object lesson teacher. If there's one thing I've ever prayed for uh, in, in teaching, it's, Lord, would you make me a better object lesson teacher? Jesus was so aware of his surroundings, he could always point to something and go, hey, look at this. And then he made it the deepest spiritual lesson on the face of the planet. And I stink at that. I really, really do. I, I just, I, I just got to stick to the text and, and let him do it for me. Uh, I, I, I'm just not great at the object lessons, but Jesus is. And so, so, so he's going to propose this question and he's going to answer it. It's going to speak to his true identity. But then he's going he's to teach really two object lessons by pointing out 
at one group of people and the one individual, he's going he's gonna to do one in the negative sense and then one in the positive sense. So don't be like this. Instead, be like this. And that's where we're headed today. First, let's deal with the question that he lays out uh, here in the first section, the last part of Luke chapter 20. And the first thing I want you to see this morning is that Jesus' rightful place is Lord of your life. Jesus' rightful place is Lord of your life. Anything less than that, and you're actually refusing Him His rightful place. His rightful place is Lord of your life. So the first question that the religious rulers had for Jesus, this is back a bit, uh, is basically, who do you think you are? He walks into the temple, he overturns the table, uh, he says, this is my house, he starts to teach, and they, they're like, wait, wait, hold on, whose authority are you doing this on? Like, like, whose authority are you overturning our whole system of religiosity? Uh, like, where, where, what, what are you doing here? Who do you think you are? And so, so Jesus, in, in that moment, he responds by asking them a question. He says, well, well, let me ask you a question. Tell me about John's baptism. Was it from God or was it from men? Brilliant question. Jesus' part, because if, if the religious rulers say it was from God, the people are going to look at them and say, if it was from God, why weren't you baptized by him? And if they say it was from men, they're going to stone him, because all the people held John to be a prophet, right? And so Jesus points to John, you remember, because John is the first person that identifies Christ's identity, John one twenty nine. He says, then John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's that first person that recognizes Jesus' identity as Messiah, as the one that would take away the sins of the world. And so, the religious rulers faced with this quandary decide they're not going to answer the question. They're like, well, we're not going to answer the question. So Jesus says, well, neither will I answer your question. So they kept asking more questions. And last week we talked about some of those questions, right? Uh, they, they, they asked a question about taxes. You know, well, well, is it right for, for, for us as citizens of God to have to pay uh, taxes to, to, to Caesar? He's not a godly man at all. And Jesus, has anybody got a quarter? And, and they pull out the denarius. And of course, it's got Caesar's image and Caesar's inscription. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And they think for a moment they've got him caught. And the people will turn against him and, because they hate Rome. And, and yet... Then he says, and, they had a half second of victory. And he says, and, give to God what is God. Surely God deserves much more than Caesar. It's his point, right? And they missed an opportunity. Then a, a group of Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection come up with the most ridiculous question about resurrection. They, they ask about something from Deuteronomy 25, a practice, a uh, leveret mar marriage, which, which isn't even practiced in Jesus' day anymore, but it was basically that, that, that if there were a couple of brothers and, 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 and one of them died before he could have kids with his wife, that the brother would then marry the wife, try to have children procreate, and, and the children were supposed to be named after the deceased brother. Uh, evidently, when this practice happened, they didn't actually name the children after the deceased brother. They gave them the, the actual living father's name, and so it never worked anyway. So by Jesus' day, it's not even happening. Uh, but so they asked this marriage about a dead practice, and then they just kind of make it nonsensical by saying, there was, there was a guy, there were seven brothers, okay? So this happened seven times. None of them had kids. Whose wife is she in the resurrection? And Jesus basically says, you know, you don't even understand the resurrection, that world won't be like this world. And, and, and so, so he explains that away. 
Now, after entertaining all of their questions on paying taxes and marriage and resurrection, he asked this second question, which points to the powerful truth of his true identity. Verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Jesus asked this question of his own. He's quoting from Psalm 110, in case you're wondering. It is a psalm that was written by King David, the greatest king in Israel's history. Now, the Jewish religious rulers have long said that the Messiah, the Christ, would be the son of David. That is actually their favorite title for the Messiah. And do you know why? Because that title for the Messiah speaks of a political kingdom. David was the greatest king in the history of Israel, right? We can talk about Solomon and all of his splendor, and we can talk about how wise he was, but David is the one that was revered as the conquering king. And and you see, that is the idea that they had, that Israel would be restored to a world power. And so their favorite thought of who the Messiah would be is the son of David, that he'll come from the lineage of David, he will restore the kingdom, of David, that Israel will take over the world again. This is what they are hoping for. And so Jesus points them to scriptures, a scripture written by their favorite king, their hallowed hero. And he says, can I point something out to you that I think you missed? And he takes them to Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Messiah would not only come through the line or the lineage of David, he would also rightfully rule over David. The Lord, that's Yahweh, by the way, said to my Lord, that's the Lord of David, speaking of the Messiah, come sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies a footstool. Jesus asked, how can David's son be David's Lord? And the point that he's making is this. If the Messiah is the Lord of the greatest king of Israel's history, if the Messiah is the Lord of the man after God's own heart, if the Messiah is the Lord of the giant slayer, And the conquering king, the one that ushered in the kingdom of Israel as they have longed for it to be, then the Messiah should be their Lord too. Then the Messiah should be their Lord too. He should be their Lord. Who are you, they ask. Jesus points to the Psalms and he says, I and Lord of all. That's who I am. Now listen to me this morning, please. I need you to hear this. That is the truth. Jesus is Lord of all. That is who He is. That is the truth, my friends. And there is nothing that you can do to change that fact. 
There's nothing you can do to change the fact that Jesus is Lord of all. You can try to ignore the fact. You can try to implement your own rule over your life. You can try to act like it's not there, right? But that doesn't change the truth at all. That's what the Jews, they were trying to ignore the truth that Jesus, the one standing before them, was Lord of all. But the Bible says one day every eye's going to see it. One day, every knee is going to bow before Him. One day, every tongue is going to have to confess it. Even those that rejected Him. The question before us today is the same question that was before them on that day. Will we accept the truth? Will we accept the fact that Jesus is Lord of all? Will you accept his rightful place as Lord of your life? Because he is Lord of all. That's where Jesus starts. Now he's going to move on to two object lessons, okay? First, a negative teaching. The second, a positive teaching. First one, he's going to point out a group of people. Here's what I want you to understand. This first set of teaching is that God hates phony religion. God hates phony religion. Let, let, let those words sink in for a bit. Some of us in our lives have practiced phony religion. And some of us in our lives have experienced phony religion. It has turned us off from church. It has given us negative thoughts about God. It has kept us from coming uh, to church on a regular basis, as God's Word instructs us to do. It says, don't forsake the assembly. Many people that claim to be Christian today, though, do forsake the assembly. And they forsake the assembly, I think, in part because somewhere along the lines, they experience some phony religion. I want you to understand God hates phony religion. The other side of that coin is those of us that have been in those phases of life where we decided we were going to go through the motions... We were practicing phony religion. Not only did God not honor those fake moments of praise or worship, those moments actually cause harm to others. I need you to be aware of that. And so Jesus moves on from his question to make a couple of powerful statements by pointing at the audience around him. The first group he points to is in verse 45 through 47. It says, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces, and to have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished severely, he says. It's an object lesson. The crowd is there, the religious rulers are still there too, which is a little awkward, right? It's a little awkward. Jesus was never afraid of confrontation. And so there, in that moment, he points the crowd to the people that have been uh, kind of raising these questions against him, these people that are longing to take back possession of the temple He uses them as an object lesson. He says to the crowd, Beware of these religious leaders of yours. 
these teachers of the law, these people that are masquerading around as messengers of God because their actions prove who they really are. They dress to impress is his first claim against you. Ever met that guy in church, right? Or gal, by the way. It can go both ways. I'm not talking about the person that wears a suit because, you know, that's, that's how they were raised and they, they honestly believe in that's, that's part of giving God your best on Sunday. I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about that, that, that person that is attention-grabbing in their choice of garb. You know what I mean? I've uh, gone to church with a couple of those people. These people love their long, flowing robes, and they love how people respond to them. Because people think that their dress makes them more holy. That's, that, 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 that's the goal. That's the driving force. Of course, we know that people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We learned that lesson when God anointed David king. These guys, they love the offices that they hold because of the attention that they get out in the marketplaces, out at HEB and Walmart. They're always seeking recognition. They're always trying to sit in the places of honor, not just at the synagogue, but also if there's ever a banquet held. They're there early because they want the best seat possible. They, they, they publicly pray out loud these long, extravagant prayers, which Jesus, by the way, calls hypocritical. Says their prayers are actually hypocritical because they're not crying out to God. They're not crying out for God's heart. They're actually chasing after man's attention. Jesus says their prayers are hypocritical. Now that's pretty bad for religious leaders, but it actually gets worse. He goes on to say, instead of looking out for the weak and taking care of the widows, they devour them. It's like a lion would devour its prey. Specifically mentions their houses. Now there's, there's some ancient study about uh, some practices. Sometimes religious rulers would be put in charge of the estate of a widow's house and they were supposed to manage it. It seems that these men would manage it in such a way that they received all the blessing from it and the widow received, well, not much. Instead of looking out for the widows, taking care of the weak, they're looking uh, for ways to take advantage of them for their own gain. And listen to what Jesus says of them, verse 47. These men will be punished most severely. You ever read any verses on hell? Anybody find them pleasant? Never found any of them pleasant. Seems like a pretty severe place to me. But look at that word right before severely. They will be punished what? Most severely. Ouch. Ouch. You've heard that phrase, there's a special place in hell for people like that. That's what Jesus is saying. Ouch. Ouch. God hates phony religion. He said last week, you can't pull the wool over the eyes of the one that invented the sheep. 
You just, you just can't do it. You just can't do it. So the question is, why do we keep trying? Why do we keep trying? Church is not meant to be a place that we come to put on a show. If you've been to one of those places, or you've watched one of those people on TV, that they seem so slick that they could sell you some oceanfront property in Arizona, you should probably change the channel. One of our aims at this church, it's actually, uh, when we have a membership class, it's something we talk about, is to be transparent, to not be hypocritical, to not wear masks. What that means, unfortunately, is that you guys get to see all of our scars. You get to see the good, but you probably see more bad and ugly than the good. (laughs) I would submit to you, I don't find anywhere in the Bible that the church is meant to be anything other than that. God hates phony religion. It's his first lesson. Now, he has one more object lesson. He points out an individual. Points out an individual. Get this at our last point. I want you to see this morning that God remembers and he rewards those who really rely on him. God remembers and rewards those who really rely on him. The second object lesson of Jesus is now positive. He says, don't be like that group of people. Instead, I want you to be like her. And it's interesting. Who did Jesus say the religious uh, rulers devoured? Who do you say they devoured? They really took advantage of who? The widows. Now, who does he point to as an example? A widow. In the midst of crowds uh, giving their offerings, by the way, we, we think the, 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 the treasury, the temple treasury was probably in the court of women, had, a, had about 13 receptacles kind of shaped like trumpets. Uh, it was made of some kind of metal. It was probably bronze. I, didn't, I, I forgot my research, to be honest. Uh, but what would happen is, is, uh, is we know some of the religious rulers would take their paycheck and cash it in smaller denominations get bigger buckets of change. So when they went to offer up their tithes, and they would pour them into these, these, these trumpets, it would sound, uh, if you've ever heard somebody at, at, at HEB at the money counting thing, ting, 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 that would be their offering, right? It was just very attention-grabbing. Oh my gosh, look at that person, how holy they are. Ting, ding, 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 ding. That's what's going on. Now, Jesus, in, in this particular passage, he doesn't say that's necessarily what these rich people are doing. And, and in fact, he doesn't even get on to the rich people forgiving, by the way. Don't, don't get me wrong. He, he doesn't like point at them and go, they shouldn't be doing that. That's not what he does. He just points out one individual that is giving above and beyond what everyone else is giving. And so he points to a widow who throws in two small copper coins. Now, these coins are called lepta, lepta. And they are the smallest coin available in the currency of Jesus' day. They, they equal about an eighth of a penny. An eighth of a penny. She throws in two eighths of a penny. Not great at math. I think that's a fourth of a penny. Right? That's what she throws in. She throws in a fourth of a penny. Now, now Alepta was also it was about a hundredth of a denarius. A hundredth of a day's wage. Okay? 
And, 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 and this is what you... Now, now, now understand contextually, uh, the Talmud says the least amount that anyone could ever give to the temple is a lepta. That's the least acceptable sacrifice or offering is a lepta. So like, I, just, I, I, want, I want you to get it. This, this, this woman, like, the bare minimum is all that she has. Right? I mean, that is all. She, she, has, she has two of that. That is, that is it. That is all that, that she has. And, and, and so she comes and she puts forth both of these coins. The phrase that Jesus says uh, here at, at the end, it says, But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. The Greek word is bios. Literally, it reads, She put in all of her life. All of her life. Now everybody else that gave, they gave out of their wealth. They, they had a lot of life left. She comes to the temple and she puts in everything she possesses. She puts in all of her life Jesus says. Now this passage has been used to teach a lot of things by a lot of pastors, okay? I'll give you four of the big things that people have taught on this passage before. I do not agree with all of them. Uh, You can. I'm not going to be mad at you for it. There's room for disagreement, okay? Uh, Some have said that the measure of a gift is not what is given, but it's what remains. Some truth in that, right? The measure of gift isn't what's given, but it's what remains. Some have said uh, that a true gift to God is measured in the spirit of how it is given. In the spirit of how it is given. Definitely truth in that, right? It's the one I I struggle with here is someone uh, said that one's giving should be in line with one's means. That passage seems to fly in the face of that, right? Because this woman definitely had no means. And she gave way above her means. Some say that true giving involves giving all that one has. But again, Jesus doesn't get on to the rich for giving their tithe, for doing their duty. He doesn't doesn't say that's bad. So you can pick and choose your favorites of any of those that you like. That's fine by me. But here's what I would point out. Genuine faith always results in genuine, uh, generous giving. Genuine faith always results in generous giving. And I'm not just speaking of to the church. See, genuine faith acknowledges that God is provider of everything that we have. That's where genuine faith begins, right? In a God that is creator. That he is a creator of everything that we see and everything that we don't see. That everything that we have the Bible says, is a, is a good and perfect gift from his hand. Everything that we possess, the Bible says, God is the source of it, that God is the creator of it. Okay? So God is provider, is what the Bible teaches time and time and time again. Now listen, if you understand that, uh, you live in, in, in that kind of realm. Where, where you don't own anything. If you don't own anything, you don't have to hold on to anything. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right? If, 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 if it's all on lease, if it all belongs to God, if God is the giver, and, and, and He's the giver, get this, of my daily bread, right? He doesn't just dole it out once a month 
uh, or every two weeks. But God actually gives me substance every single day of my life. And if God gives me what I need for the, the next day, for the next step, for the next trial, for the, for, for the, for the next trouble that comes my way, if God is going to provide for my daily needs, then, then I, can, I, can, I can stay open-handed uh, really for a couple reasons. One, because I've got to receive what's coming. See, if I'm clinging to what he gave me yesterday, how can I receive what he's going to give me tomorrow? You following me? You see that, right? It's a little difficult to catch things like this, okay? You ever played sports and tried to do it like this? It didn't work out too well for you. But if I, if I see God as provider, if I see God as, as the giver of all good things, if he's my daily portion, then I, I keep my hands open. When my hands are open... They're not only open to receive, they're also open to share. They're also open to share. I've told you a story of a, a friend of mine from seminary. His name's Jesse. Uh, Jesse, a man, a smart guy. I always felt like Jesse was better than me in ministry, better than youth ministry, better communicator, had better ideas. Uh, he's planning a church uh, down in the Houston area. And uh, a couple years ago, Jesse got diagnosed with a brain cancer brain tumor. Jesse is an organized individual. Uh, Some would call him a control freak. And uh, he said through that experience, what God had taught him is that he had been holding on to everything. He had plans for his life. He had plans for his marriage. He had plans for his kids. He had plans for his church. He said in that moment, he had to realize that he had to take his hands because his hands had been clenched for so long and he had to just lay them down on his thighs and he just had to open them up. He said, I had to learn that every breath I have is a gift from God. And he said, I know it sounds silly, but in that simple act of prayer, just laying my hands on my thighs and opening them up to the Lord, God changed my whole perspective on life. It's about living open-handed instead of tight-fisted. Okay? That's what Jesus points out in this woman. This woman grasped something that people that were very good at church had not gotten yet. That God is the provider of all of our needs daily. And if I really trust Him, Not only do I keep my hands open to receive, but also to share whatever comes my way. Jesus points her out because that kind of faith is rare. He doesn't record her name, but he records her story so that it has been told generation after generation after generation as an example of what it really looks like to put all of your faith and your trust in God. Okay? Generous faith, or genuine faith leads to generous giving. Let me give you some application and we'll wrap it up. First and foremost, uh, I would encourage anyone here who has not, or anyone here who has tried to take back the reins to accept Jesus' rightful place as Lord of your life. 
See, that's not just a call for people that don't believe in Christ or haven't trusted Him as Savior yet. It is certainly that. If you have never trusted in Christ to be your Savior, you need to do that. The Bible says over and over and over, today is the day of salvation. Today. Just studied the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your home. What do you do? You just say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Take control of my life. Right? I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. That's it. It's, it. You just cry out, save me. God save me. He'll do that. But some of you, my Christian friends, you did that. And somewhere along the way, you stopped trusting. Somewhere along the way, you forgot he was provider, right? And you tried to take the reins again. There's nothing more miserable than a Christian trying to run his life. <laughs> I mean, it, it stinks. It really does. A Christian trying to be Lord of his life is a miserable individual. Because <laughs> he's experienced the Lordship of Jesus, and he knows he's so far from that. Guess what? You can come to the altar today. All of us who are weak and who are weary and who are heavy burdened and heavy laden, we get to come to Jesus every day and say, Jesus, forgive me for being such a sinner, for such a control freak. Forgive me for constantly wanting to call the shots of my life. Would you take control again and again and again and again, please? Two, I think this text calls us to stop playing church. God hates phony religion. He just does. Let it not be said of us that we are those people. Amen? Now, that's going to require some things of you. Who likes being uncomfortable, really? Anybody? Right? I don't know what, we all have our own thing that makes us uncomfortable, right? Some people are introverts, and, and I love you, and I know, I, I know who you are, because during the meet and greet, it is the worst three minutes of church in your life, right? I mean, we're like, go, go hug and handshake somebody, and you try to stay in the middle of that pew, you do, and, and I get it, like my wife is one of those people, she, she's like, that is the most scary time on the face of the planet. It's not that she doesn't love people, she just has to know people to start grabbing on them, you know? What is it that makes you really uncomfortable? I think for a lot of us, what makes us uncomfortable is people seeing any flaw in our armor. To see that we're, we, we, we're, we're failures, to see that we actually need God, which is crazy because this is a place built uh, for people that need God. So I'm going to challenge you, get, get uncomfortable, be real, be honest, be broken. No masks. Church is not about theater. There's some place in Austin you can do that. Paid performers, they sing and they dance. They do it for a living. We can't. No more acting like a Christian. Just be one. Be one. You know what they said about the first group of Christians? They realized they were a bunch of uneducated, ordinary folks. But they had been with 
Jesus. That's church. A bunch of regular people with regular problems that had been with Jesus. It's a pretty picture. Last, uh, again, last lesson. One of the widow, I think, is just a challenge to live open-handed. To live open-handed. Some of you are scared of that. I get it. I get it. I, I can be a control freak too. I, I want, I want, I want, I want to be in control. That's what I was praying about when we sang that last song. God, forgive me. I have tried to control my circumstances for so long. I've tried to control how I feel. I've tried to repress. I've tried to do all kinds of things. Right? The problem with control, guys, is that when you're in control, you are missing the blessing and provision of God. Can I say that again? You get two choices. You get to be provider, and you get to be in control, and you will get what you can produce. Or, you can let go, and you can receive what God can produce. You get His joy. In the midst of all your tough circumstances, you get his love, you get his faithfulness, you get his patience, right? Long-suffering, that's a great word. That's what you get. Challenge you to live open-handed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for bringing us into this place. I pray just in the next couple moments that we um, would, whether it's physically able or just uh, where we are, that we would just come to you, that we would come to the altar, that we would let you minister to our spirits this morning, that we would let you take your rightful place in our lives again, that we would stop playing church, stop acting like we have it all together. I pray this morning that there's a group of people that would come and that they would humbly bow, maybe humbly, and and maybe they thought they were humble before this morning. But Holy Spirit, you've pointed out, no, they've been in control. And God, when we're in control, we are missing out on who you are. We're missing out on your blessings. Let us open our hands today and really rely on you. Please, please, Jesus. In your name, I pray. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. So we're going to have a a full-on invitation. I think that song really demands it. Come to the altar. Now, we like to say, hey, this is an altar. If you can get up and come here, I would really encourage that. There's something powerful to putting your feet behind what God is doing in your heart. There's something powerful. It'll it'll, it'll transform you. Because you'll walk home from church and go, oh my gosh, I got up and I walked to the front of the church and I said, hey, I need to change my life, right? And it'll stick with you this week, I promise. But Listen, some of you, and I know, I'm asking you to be uncomfortable. Welcome to church. That's uncomfortable, okay? It's uncomfortable. Following Jesus is usually pretty uncomfortable. Because he calls us out of ourselves. He calls us to let go. He calls us to trust. So I'm going to encourage you, come to the altar if you physically can't, right? If you can't, just in your heart, you bow before him. Maybe, Maybe like Jesse. You put your hands, those tight, clenched fists. You've been holding 
back emotions. You've been holding back fear. You've been trying to control that situation in life. And this morning, you came face to face with your creator. And he said, enough is enough. And just where you are, you put those clenched fists on your thighs. And slowly, as Alan sings, you open them up and say, God, I will let go. I will receive your blessings again. You are my daily bread, not me. I want your bread. I want your bread, not mine. Okay? All right? All right. Stand if you can. If you can, you can stand. Now you can't put your hands on your thighs. You can put them on the pew in front of you if you need to. But the invitation is is simple. You're going to hear it sung over you again and again. Come to the altar. I'm going to invite you to come. I'm going to invite you to come. However the Lord is speaking to you, I'm going to invite you to come now. Come to the altar. Give it to him. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.